0: Well, I'm David Harper Clemens. I'm a metalsmith and artist practicing out of Spruce Pine, North Carolina. Welcome to Cut the Craft.
1: The other thing is, I my internet has been sort of cutting in and out a little bit. So if you guys like say something really funny and don't hear me at all, like it's not (laughs) because I'm a jerk.
0: And there was this Amy lady, and I'd make a joke, and she just didn't laugh.
1: <laughs> just stone cold.
2: <laughs> yeah, just it got absorbed through her microphone. <laughs> um, don't worry, though, because I laugh at everything, so you, be plenty of, you'll have plenty of backup. Right, <laughs> right. Well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian.
1: And I'm Amy.
2: And we are here with... David Clemens, a metalsmith and artist working out of Pen or spruce pine north carolina. Excuse, well, I guess for our <laughs> intensive purposes they're very similar or the same. Indeed. <laughs> but yes, out of north carolina, David, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Um so David, for somebody who's unfamiliar with your work, can you describe what you make and then like more specifically how you fit into uh, metal smithing?
0: Oh, those are tough questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Metal work kind of goes across a pretty wide breadth of uh, formats. Um, So Mm -hmm. at the most basic level, jewelry, uh, wearable objects, and then uh, as well, really love housewares and tablewares. So thinking of Mm -hmm. almost like, utilitarian sculpture based objects, you know, for the home and the table. I like that scale. Mm-hmm. And then periodically uh, we'll do larger uh, commission works and just sculptural objects. And in terms of the metals that I work with, it, it's kind of all over the board, you know, the, the non-ferrous, you know, traditional jewelry metals like silver and gold and copper and uh, pewter even. And then, uh, you know, things rendered in steel as well. And mm-hmm. in terms of like where I fall I guess in the, the various categories in the metal smithing community, um, definitely the, the jewelry. I would say um, kind of skirts two arenas. You know, one would be uh, narrative and kind of concept driven uh, storytelling objects, mm-hmm. um, and then the other grouping is much more about uh, sort of formal investigations of material and material manipulation, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that would take the shape of, you know, found objects, found materials that are then somehow connected to uh, the precious metals in interesting ways. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's a pretty wide breadth of stuff that I do.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. I know uh, one of the things that uh, really drew us to your work initially when we were kind of, you know, scoping you out, I guess, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, was uh, where your pewter wears. and. Yeah. I was telling Amy that uh, when I was in college, I worked at a jewelry store, just doing like the like pantograph engraving, I guess, where it's uh-huh. like you have the template and the. Yep. I did so many monograms on pewter cups, though, and <laughs> right. I always, I mean, I thought they were kind of silly, uh, of course, but that material is so interesting, um, and it. Like I love just seeing some of the textures that you were that you were working with, and also was amazed that you were able to do it without crushing it because it's so soft. Because I know when I was doing it, I destroyed a lot of cups. And,
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, it's a different metal. It has a lot of different properties um, than the other, I guess, sort of traditional non-ferrous metals um, mm-hmm. that that make it. You know, accepting of texture uh, and I, I feel like you can get a really rich range of textures um, you know, because it is so soft, um, mm-hmm. you know, but it's also, you know, it's food safe, you can cast it, you can weld it, uh, you can form it in any number of different ways. Uh, and it's, it's just really responsive. And I think that's one of the things that drew me to it as a material is that there's an immediacy there that you don't necessarily have with some of the other metals. Um, but you can still do a lot of very similar techniques that you would find, like in traditional, you know, coppersmithing to make a bowl or to make a cup or a chalice. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of expedited because of some of the ways that you work with pewter that are different. Um, cool. I could go down the technical rabbit hole, but <laughs> 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 you know, it it, it it has some unique properties that make it a lot of fun. And a lot of fun to work with and very fast to work with. Mm. So
2: It's like instant satisfaction.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like there's not, you know, f- for instance, without getting too complicated, there, there's just, you know, if I was going to make a cup out of silver, you know, I have to anneal the silver and then that's going to mm-hmm. soften it and I have to pickle it. That's going to clean it. And then I have to form it. And as I'm forming it, it's going to work harden, which mm-hmm. means I mm-hmm. then have to stop and anneal it and pickle it. And then repeat that process but with (laughs) pewter, it's like there's no need for annealing so you just start reforming and you keep working until you know basically you're done or you add on something with solder so there's no pickling there's no annealing um if anything the metal uh anneals itself as you work it so the more trauma you exert to the metal the softer it becomes which is oh a good thing and a bad thing, you know, it's a drawback in a sense that you need to sort of think about and plan out your form so that you have compound curves or rims or use slightly thicker material, uh, mm. to sort of compensate, oh. you know, for the softening that may happen. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, the processing and kind of immediacy and pacing of the work, uh, can happen at a much more accelerated pace than you would get with, you know, those other metals.
3: Wow, Dang.
1: Interesting. So uh maybe this is too technical, but
3: <laughs> <laughs> but uh,
1: you know I, I'm I'm not a metal person, but I know what annealing is and things uh-huh. like that. Um so what is it about pewter that you don't like why don't you have to anneal it? What what are the like chemical
0: You know, I weapon? need to actually <laughs> <laughs> I confer with a scientist that could prove or disprove my theory of why this happens. Um, mm-hmm. so, so basically, most metals have a crystalline structure. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine those crystals being packed together really tightly, when you anneal metal, you basically are heating up the metal and the heat causes those crystals to pull apart. Okay, And then when you mm-hmm. quench the metal, those crystals jam back together, but there's still spaces in between those crystals. And it's okay. that's those spaces between the crystals, you know, that's what allows the metal to be soft for a period of time. But as you exert trauma into the metal, you're fracturing those crystals and the spaces between them become smaller and smaller until they're totally jammed together. So if you imagine like taking your hands, opening your fingers, looking at them in front of you, and if your fingers are spread open, that's like what the crystals look like when they're being heated and they're pulling apart. Mm -hmm. If you take those fingers and push them together, but they still have space in between your fingers, sort of, you know, nesting them together, Mm -hmm. uh, that's what happens when they've been quenched and the crystals come together a little ways. But if you then were to hammer that metal, that's like when your fingers are totally knitted together and there's no daylight, no space in between them, they're Mm work-hardened. So that annealing temperature at which those crystals pull apart is about a third of the way to the melting point of the most metals. That's just a rough kind of estimate. But pewter has a melting temperature that's usually between, depending on the alloy, like 400 at the highest range, maybe like 450 to 500. So my theory, again, this is the one that needs to be proven by scientists, <laughs> is that when you exert force, force changes. it. it basically, you're accelerating electrons and you're creating heat. So the idea is that when you hammer that piece of metal, you're actually creating enough heat that you're annealing that material in the yeah. pewter. Oh.
2: Yeah, you know, and like one of
0: the ways that like this first came to mind is I was thinking back to a demonstration that one of my early blacksmithing t- teachers did. Um, I don't think he does this anymore. Uh, William Bostis was the guy that, <laughs> that did this, but it was my very first blacksmithing class, and he lit the forge using a cold piece of quarter-inch round steel. <laughs> And so it was so basically he takes this piece of steel and it was to show that force generates heat. And he just starts wailing on it on the anvil and it starts to glow. Whoa. So then he uses this red hot steel that he's just forged to red hot to ignite the gas in the forge. What? And we're all just like,
2: What? <laughs> so it's like And then he was like class dismissed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was so awesome
0: and it was just this great sort of like lesson and you know force equals heat and so you know when I started working on pewter when I first had it introduced and I saw somebody talk or heard somebody talking about this kind of you know work softening that Peter has it's like that came to mind where it's like oh yeah force generates heat and if you're going about a third of the way to the annealing temperature that amount of force would do that wow. so that's Dang. my
2: theory. <laughs>
1: That I so, want that to be true.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to. Con- I don't want you to seek out and to confirm or deny that. I'm yeah. just gonna will this one to be true. Right, right. That's what <laughs> <No>. I want. <laughs> no, um, that's not how facts work. Um, but <laughs> what are you <we> talking about? <laughs> but so hold on. But you were what you were saying though about the annealing before. Mm-hmm. So the theory part just happened with that's the theory line gets crossed when you were talking about the pewter, but all of that other stuff was sort of like basic.
0: And yeah, metal. all the other stuff is basic metallurgy. Like you can find okay. that in any book, but the theory is when I'm talking about, you know, being able to reach that temperature just with the force of striking the metal and causing it to anneal with the pewter.
2: Cool. Hmm. Okay. Okay, cool. Whoa. I am very, I'm so happy you went down that technical tangent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And if we have any listeners who are scientists, feel free to try it and tell Please, us what you find. We would love to. Know. <laughs> we'll, we'll share it.
2: <laughs> Penland School of Craft is an educational center dedicated to the creative life, located in North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains. Penland offers one, two, six, and eight-week workshops in a wide range of media. Penland also offers artist residencies in a beautiful gallery. Now taking registration for fall workshops and applications for the CORE Fellowship and the 2022 Winter Residency. Also coming up is the Penland Online Benefit Auction from August 21st to the 28th. More information can be found about all of this at penland.org.
1: North House Folk School teaches traditional craft on the shores of Lake Superior. Courses for this fall and winter are now open for registration. Learn anything from jewelry making and metalworking to woodworking and weaving. Visit northhouse.org for more information.
2: In general, is uh, your material um, sort of guiding the... um, project the subject matter for your the concept of your project or do you generally kind of have a project first and then select your material or is it a little bit of both
0: yeah I, th- I think it's 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 most definitely a little bit of both I think just mm-hmm. given my my background you know sort of coming at mellowsmithing not necessarily from like a, a craft school but coming at it I was first introduced to it you know in art school And then, Mm -hmm. you know, pursued some coursework at a local community college that had really amazing, you know, metalsmithing and welding fabrication and blacksmithing. Um, And then, you know, uh, ultimately went to grad school for metalsmithing. But I guess all of that is to say that, you know, in art school, so much of the way that I worked was about starting with the concept and then, you know, figuring out how to render that concept and whatever material seemed appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I guess where I sort of depart from, I guess that sort of fine art model in the sense of, uh, you know, my materials would be varied. you know, it's like, I, I, I really liked a lot of different kinds of metals and they would speak appropriately for certain concepts, but not for others. Mm -hmm. And so where say the material history or its properties, you know, are most appropriate for that concept that would sort of steer me to reuse, you know, that, that metal, um, and then with the more formal work, you know, it really is a lot of times based on uh, a material that I'm interested in exploring, you know, maybe it's mm-hmm. a togwa nut or you know some kind of acrylic or, um, you know, some type of wood that I maybe sandblasted, you know, and so there it's like, it's a much more responsive process. I, I look at how I'm manipulating that material and how can I make something in metal that creates this interesting um, kind of juxtaposition uh, with that foreign material uh, mm-hmm. but then also make them connect in a way that, that that sparks curiosity and seems to somehow make sense even though it's this kind of weird you know, fiction that I've just created <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> I feel like this sort of ties in with what you were saying earlier about the um, sort of dealing with like found objects and then precious metals and kind of putting those together and seeing how you can like make it work I feel like that fits more easily into like a more conceptual piece since there's already this these two things that wouldn't traditionally go together maybe. Mm -hmm. Do you ever also explore that with like functional wear as well?
0: I guess in terms of, I mean, I I definitely like to incorporate weird materials into some of that functional wear Mm -hmm. um, when I can. Uh, And and I guess the only limitation is making sure that uh, the connection method or the location doesn't somehow impede the use of that utilitarian object. You know, because mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like even with some of my sculptural work, in essence, you know, I've designed it so that it can work. You know, so like I've done some teapots that have weird armatures around them. Um, you know, it, it, it's ultimately designed to function. Like I've tested it out and want it to function well. So if somebody decides they want to pull it out of their display cabinet and use it, they could. That, that most likely won't happen <laughs> because it's <laughs> end up, like, going into collection somewhere. But, right. but no, it's like I, I want people to use them. And so, yeah, it's like I try and figure out that balance of, you know, where can I include these materials in a way that um, visually is sound and, and functionally is sound so that it won't, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. form an impediment to really being able to enjoy the use of whatever that thing might be.
2: Dang. You're such a thoughtful person, I love you.
0: <laughs> I had good teachers
2: <laughs> I mean they're very important uh, they are you know? It,
0: it, you know I say that and it's like it's it's really you know it's it's a very earnest comment because I feel like you, you can you can come to you know a practice with you know certain insights and certain kind of inspiration um But I think having the right kind of teachers really guides the way that you learn to uh, break down the subject you're working with, break down Mm. how you can, you know, convey the information through material, um, and just help you to kind of shape those uh, the structure structure the questions that you're asking, whatever it is you're doing. And I feel Mm. like that's really important. So yeah, I, I I feel like. I had the desire to do a lot of these things, whether it was metalsmithing or illustration or whatever, but, you know, some of the ways that I was probed and sort of, you know, questioned by the instructors really, you know, I'm thankful and appreciative for the guidance they gave me and, you know, the lessons that I learned, so. So good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so you mentioned before that you um, had been in the art department uh can you can you tell us as far as your career is concerned how you made the transition from teaching in the art department to craft work
0: um i feel like i'm still there <laughs> <laughs> um you know it's like i we moved out to north carolina um not quite three years and i've been in this studio uh almost two and a half years and I feel like last year was just kind of a wash <laughs> but, <laughs> right. um, but but yeah I mean it was definitely it, it's been a long time since I um, I guess was having to support myself based on what I was making I, I my background prior to doing metal work was more illustration and so mm-hmm. I did you know some editorial stuff and you know product logo design and that kind of thing. And so I used to, you know, make my living that way among many other jobs, too mm-hmm. many jobs. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the transition has definitely been, you know, kind of relearning, uh, you know, I guess retraining those muscles, you know, um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's different. I mean, that was over 20 years ago and uh, you know, the market's different, you know, how work is, you um, you know, the the way that you advertise things. I remember having to like, you know, schlep portfolios around and Mm -hmm. take them to, you know, uh, art directors and say, you know, would you like to use my work? And I was awful. (laughs) You know, now it's like, you can, you can do all this stuff, you know, online and, um, but you know, and it's also that, that sort of, um, you know, no longer having that kind of safety net, you know, like when, when I was Mm. teaching, um, you know, I, I was still making work and, you know, I didn't worry so much if the work didn't sell. You know, it's like I always had this other income that you know, kind of kept things stable. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and so to a certain extent, that was liberating because I could really just sort of deep dive into something that was really off the wall um, because it, it didn't mm-hmm. matter if mm-hmm. it sold. Um, and, and I still mm-hmm. try and give myself the liberty to do that, but it's like I definitely have to balance it out more with. I need to, you know, make this bill and this bill and this bill. <laughs> so, right. You know, it's 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 trying to sort of figure that out and, uh, you know, kind of decide what it is I want to make. You know, it's like I, I, in sort of making that transition, it's like I knew things that I didn't want to do. You know, I didn't want to do necessarily like full-on production work where I'm doing, you know, runs of hundreds of the same sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so making fewer objects that have a higher price point you know, it's kind of the model that um, I'm adopting and, uh, you know, trying to increase the visibility of the work and, uh, you know, create designs that pull kind of unique elements from the more elaborate work, um, but downsize it so that it's at a lower price point, but still kind of, you know, speaks to things that I'm interested in, you know, even if Mm -hmm. I do have to do like a limited run of something. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely for me, I feel like, a work in in progress. Um, so And I still get, you know, my my little uh, teaching thrill by, you know, teaching workshops periodically. Um, Sure. But but yeah, it's definitely like a work in progress.
2: So I guess uh, amidst this, uh, this like transitional period, if there was like a piece of advice or something that you've like learned over the last few years as you've been getting back more into that, mode uh what Mm -hmm. would it be
0: you know the 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 biggest thing i would say is to not and it's been like a mantra i've tried to remember is to 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 not stop exploring you know so i was talking about you know allowing myself that kind of latitude to do some of those more off the wall things you know i I feel Mm -hmm. like that's where you sometimes will it's like you tap into the thing that uniquely is yours and so it's like continuing to do that exploration and then, you know, uh, you're really committing to it, but then taking a second and figuring out, okay, so how can I dissect that? And what elements of that can I pull into work that maybe is a little bit faster to produce or that I can, um, you know, execute, it something, execute in a way that's going to, again, be at a lower price point. Because I think, you know, I, I really think it's important not to get so locked into that kind of production mode that you, you you stop allowing your creative voice to be heard through the work that you're mm-hmm. making.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think that's... I mean, Amy, that reminds me a lot of sort of what you were going through with like the quilty spoons and then moving from <laughs> that. <laughs> so, sorry, I don't mean to demean them by saying quilty, but... <laughs> <laughs> But, but that seemed reminiscent of sort of what, you know, you've talked about in a few episodes on the show of yeah. feeling stuck in that rut and like you needed to produce because that's what you were being known for.
1: Yeah. We won't spend a lot of time talking about that. <laughs> but but I think I, I can empathize and sort of relate to that where it's like it's it's a partial economics game and a partial head game. Like, right. you're like, I got to pay the bills. So I should be making this much of whatever thing that sells, but then where problems can occur is when you're not creating balance between like emotion or creative, excuse me, creative exploration and like paying the, you know, electric bill or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, It's a balance.
0: I, I think too, like one of the other things I would say is, you know, talk to people that are, where you'd like to be, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and ask them questions, you know, it's like, how did, what did you do to get to where you are? You know? And it's like, from a business standpoint to a studio setup standpoint, you know, and, um, and you know, it, 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 I remember doing this too when I was doing illustration work is, is going to talk to people at different stages. So it's like, I'd really like to have my work out at this point at some time in the future. And so I talk to people that are there, but then also find people that are sort of in between where you're at at that present moment and that mm-hmm. future point and talk to them mm-hmm. so that you can kind of get, mm. you know, an understanding of the trajectory and the steps you might have to take. Because sometimes talking to those people that are like famous people, you're just like, you can't see, you know, how you're going to get <laughs> right. you know, from where you are to like where they are in their practice, you know, but if you can mm-hmm. kind of like find people at different stages, you know, and pick their brain and, that's one of the things I love about the craft community too is it's such an open field in terms of people being willing to share information and
3: mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: and help each other along. At least that's the way I feel like it's been, you know, in, in the metals community. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a great
2: network. It's a very supportive network. So.
1: Yeah. I feel like that. Do you feel like mm-hmm. that, Brian?
2: About, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's yeah. been, I, I, of course, I can only speak to my experience, but that's definitely mm-hmm. been my experience. And mm-hmm. I think What's really encouraging is that a lot of other people I talk to who are like, you know, around my stage or dare I say our stages, maybe, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, are really passionate about that as well and mm-hmm. sort of making sure that you're like diligently passing along the graciousness that our mentors passed on to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so, yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh- so uh David, what of your pieces are you most proud of and why?
0: I it's funny because like I remember thinking about this question and I, I often have this sort of love-hate relationship with work. You know, you're really excited when you first start it, and then you get into it, you're just like, What am I doing? This is insane. <laughs> and you know, and then it's sort of like you kind of warm up to it a little bit, and then when you get done, at least when I get done, I'm just kind of like. Okay, I'm done. I need to put it away for a while. You know, sometimes the pieces get done with you before you get done with them. Totally. <laughs> but but no, I mean I, I think that you know, I, with distance, I always you know have a, a fondness for the pieces. You know, even if they were a very, you know, sort of they were a trial to make, I, I still find a fondness, and and then when I look back, but I would say one of the pieces I've, I've really uh, enjoyed making um was there was a bread basket that i made uh actually shortly after i moved out here and one it just combined a lot of different uh materials and techniques that i enjoy so there was some forging there was some fabrication there was some etching uh there was raising um yeah. And so just the, the, the kind of overall process was a really great experience. Um, and then it was also in a grouping of pieces that I I feel like, um, for me, I've I've always been interested in making work, uh, that has some kind of social or cultural commentary. Mm -hmm. And so this piece kind of fell, fell into that group grouping of work. And, uh, so I like the message that it has, um, you know. But again, sort of going back to those materials, you know, when I when I work with pieces that have this kind of social or cultural commentary, I want there to be, I want that to be one level of access. But then the materiality and the visuals become other levels or points of access. So it's like even if somebody doesn't necessarily get the specific message there's Mm -hmm. still this form that they respond to physically and there's the visuals that are there that make it an enticing thing to look at And, you know, when they come up closer to look at it, there's new things that get revealed as they look at it. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, the, the, the the bread basket that I did, um, called the overlooked, um, is a piece that I really like that I've done in the last couple of years.
2: Cool. I love that. I really, yeah, I really like that. Um, sort of a, What you were saying about those multiple points of access so it's like even if they're not picking up on the message they're still like able to experience that piece and pull something away from it Mm -hmm. um and it seems like it's sort of those different things also guide you towards the message too as you become like more engaged with it
4: yeah definitely this guy told me the other day about going to a codependency group therapy session and realizing he was thinking about asking people out there Now there's a couple things to unpack here. For one, I'm skeptical about whether or not a codependency therapy group can even exist without naturally furthering codependency. But another thing worth noting is that this guy benefited from being there at least by realizing that he was trying to continue his old ways in the very place he brought himself to try and change them. Now these two views make for a dilemma, but there's good codependency out there when it isn't people. Like sitting on one half of a long chair you're making so you have the best angle for sanding its other half. Or even if it is with people. If it's openly communicated and there's set boundaries and transparency, is it really even codependency anymore? Or does it become a relationship of collaboration, like Windsor chairmakers sitting, talking in Windsor chairs? Shout out to Amy for that image. I saw a show the other day where a girl who has seizures was imitating having a seizure so she could train her dog for when she actually has a seizure. Acting out having a seizure not only helped train her dog, but also helped her better see how people react and feel when she's having a real seizure. Is what it's like as close as we can get to what it is for some things? If there's a blurry line in between, is it a line? Or are your eyes bad? Understanding yourself and what you're working with generally takes an indeterminable amount of time, but lands like an epiphany, unless you plan through care and joy. Aspen Golan is a woodworker and furniture maker in Penland, North Carolina, who has a joyous and contemplative personality so tied to her craft that abstract notions and larger questions naturally come up. Won't you join the Cut the Craft crew next episode as they explore mental and material natures through Aspen's thoughts and practices? Epiphanies abound. So if you need them, you can depend on us.
1: So I heard about the last part with the different materials that you used, but then I didn't hear, like, why it was, like, conceptually important
0: like the whole the whole premise behind the piece and uh, the, the series, I'm, I'm wanting to do additional pieces in that series of bread baskets. Um, and uh, this first one was called The Overlooked, but it's really about a lot of different communities of people that mm-hmm. uh, work in capacities that improve um, our quality of life,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but that are oftentimes kind of not really considered or valued um, in the way that they really should be um, Mm -hmm. for the work that they do and sort of seeing them as human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this particular one, a lot of the symbolism in the object, uh, the way that the handle of the basket sort of comes over in an arc um, over the bowl of the basket and then comes along the back of the basket and becomes like the tines of a rake And then the bowl of the basket itself is shaped like uh, leaves, and so it's meant to sort of reference um, like yard work, and Mm. that's where you know I kind of got the initial idea for the piece was um, having a neighbor that saw me raking leaves in the yard uh, offered to let me borrow their Mexican, and um, you know was just kind of like taken aback, but was just like I'm just gonna keep. Rake in my yard, and it and it was one of those things where this person, you know, meant no ill offense.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It was just sort of a matter of fact thing for them. But it's like, it was just the idea that these people that worked for them and their lawn crew would come in and just make their lawn look beautiful, and you know, this person didn't have a name. You know, mm-hmm. it it was the person was being referred to almost like they were a tool hanging in the shed,
1: right? right. And
0: yeah. uh, and so you know, I wanted to make a series of pieces that somehow address this. And yeah. so I started thinking about, you know, these people that, you know, sacrifice their, their bodies, you know, to sort of do this. And that kind of led me to, um, you know, uh, you know, being, you know, growing up Southern Baptist and, you know, hearing about, you know, Christ giving up his body and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, getting your, your, little sip of wine and and piece of bread. And, and so then it also started tying into, you know, looking at what bread, how bread has served so many different cultures throughout history as a sustaining, you know, food, Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the different service implements that surround bread. And so it became this kind of like, okay, here's the way that I can, you know, uh, speak to this specific, you know, service of, of, bread and, you know, then bread becomes a sort of metaphor for these people and their sacrifices. And that's where, you know, like I said, I kind of settled in the object of making a bread basket was, you know, um, just because of wanting to kind of reference the sacrifice to sustain others. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so yeah, that's where that piece kind of came from.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's really powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Um, so can you tell us about like any other themes that you have explored in your work that you feel, you know, that are important?
0: Um, I mean, I would say something that, you know, frequently comes back up is just, um, you know, how identity is constructed. You know, I, I look a lot at, you know, social and cultural, um, influences, you know, things that impact how we see ourselves and how we create an understanding of self and, mm-hmm. you know, how that self uh, relates and is understood by, you know, the surrounding population. And mm-hmm. so those are definitely themes that come up, um, sometimes much more emphatically than others. Sometimes I feel like it can take on a more abstract, um, you know, kind of exploration where there there's some kind of central element that's being poked or prodded or explored by an external structure. Um, And then other times it may deal more specifically with like recognizable, you know, symbols from, you know, pop culture. Um, But, you know, those are definitely themes that I feel like, you know, even when I'm doing the more formal work are always kind of running around in my head. Um, And it, it takes me a little bit longer, I think, to Decipher the best way to present some of those ideas, Um, because I I feel like. Ask about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I feel like it's important to like. I have to have enough distance that um, I can better orchestrate the emotional response I'm trying to create in the viewer. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Um, You know, because it's like I I feel like I've just now gotten to the point where you know some of the things that we all bore witness to over the last year. You know, I have a symbolic language that I can use in objects to tell some of those stories um, from my perspective. And, and it's always been important to me that it's like I don't it's like, yes, there may be a degree of generalization in, in some of the topics in terms of how I deal with them. But it's like they all come from uh, my internalized experience of those events or actually having lived through those events. Um, you know, so some of the stories that I'm planning on telling um in a grouping of work that I'm just getting started with, uh, you know, we'll definitely address things that happened over this past year. Um, but speak to, you know, experiences I've had where uh, you know, I feared for my life because of, you know, an interaction I was having with, you know, a policeman. Um, mm-hmm. and it was me doing something that was just a normal everyday activity. And, you know, here's somebody that is approaching me with a love of hostility and mm-hmm. interrogation. And mm-hmm. I'm just coming from picking up my lunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. So it's right. just like I you know, so it's it's things like that 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 take me a while to sort of like you know, get some distance, get some clarity, and really learn to tease out what were the important elements of that situation that I want to convey, and mm-hmm. then finding a language to convey them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I don't actually even remember what the question was. But.
1: <laughs> well, you've done a really good job of answering it. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's <laughs> <laughs> well, just asking about um, just th- the different themes behind oh, the your themes. work. That's right. Know? That's so. right.
2: Well, so, and then yeah. also how they tie into those materials. So I can, mm-hmm. it, it even ties back to other questions where you're, we <laughs> you know, we were asking kind of about the, you know, whether you're approaching with a concept in mind and then picking the materials, which in this case, that sounds more along that line rather mm-hmm. than starting out with materials and Let's think of a theme. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like with the, with the bread basket, it's like, you know, the, the steel made sense because of its structural properties and the fact that that's what most, you know, tools are made out of. Mm-hmm. Um, the the wood that was carved for the handle was, is, you know, um, hickory, which is a very common, you know, handle for, you know, implements. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the copper that was used for the leaves, um, I could get or uh, affect a patina or coloration in the metal when it was finished. It was very similar to you know, the, the, the brown hues that you find in like, you know, leaf matter that you're collecting with a rake in the fall. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's like the, there was a lot of things about the specific metals and and the materials that um, that were connected, you know, at at different levels besides just the formal level to the
2: the project. Mm, Sure. Mm -hmm. And also, by the way, I just looked up that piece as you were uh, when you were describing it initially. And Mm -hmm. that is a beautiful bread basket um, <laughs> <Thank you>. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah um no that that's super cool though and I, I i think for me personally it's just really helpful to kind of hear how you approach those you know um you know figure out what you're going to use for which type of project mm-hmm. it's not something you always get to hear you just get to see the end result <laughs> right, <laughs> right.
1: Oh, um so what what about metal smithing really satisfies you as opposed to a different creative pursuit like what is it like why are you like really into metal
0: oh the torture, <laughs> <laughs>
1: the torture. <annealing. laughs>
0: yeah no it, it's uh it, it's funny because I, I i love I love that process of making your own puzzle you know mm-hmm. and then like you define the puzzle and then you have to solve it you
3: know? Oh wow! So, and yeah. you're
0: solving it through this like physical manipulation of material and mm-hmm. uh yeah i just i i don't know there, there's something i i i like things that have kind of layered meticulous kind of tedious processes um mm-hmm. I, I find them very kind of meditative and uh you know uh you know art has always kind of helped me focus on things and and uh, calms me down um, mm-hmm. and I think especially with metal smithing um, you know I, I tend to be kind of an anxious person, and the processes that are involved in metalwork really force me to kind of hone in on a specific moment and a specific task, and there's something really soothing about that mm-hmm. and so uh there's a centering that I feel like metalsmithing gives me that I don't always find in other uh, disciplines that I have worked with. Um, it, it becomes similar even sometimes like when I'm doing certain metalsmithing things to, to painting, you know, um, hmm. the, the engagement of the hand, um, you know, is something that, like that physicality of the hand, I, I, mm-hmm. I really enjoy that about metalsmithing um
2: would you say you experience that a lot more than say like in drawing maybe the three-dimensional aspect or the um I guess just nature of metal gives you something about that engages you in a way that other mediums you work in doesn't
0: do yeah I could see that I mean I think that you know when I was talking about the physicality there's um I, I think well and I think it may also be more a matter of how I draw and paint, um, you know, it, it's like the the, the, the kind of physicality that I encounter, you know, doing metalwork is a broader spectrum of physicality. So it's everything from much more, you know, physically encompassing, you know, movements that encompass, you know, the back and the shoulder and the arm um, mm-hmm. to things that are super fine, where it's just a couple of fingers, you know, and I feel like with, my painting and drawing it was more just my hand mm. you know and and and, it, and the thing is it's like i'm not in any way saying that i you know i i i just love making you know so whether it's metalwork or or painting or, or even books you know it's like it's it's that that kind of engagement with materials and ideas to again sort of solve these puzzles that i make myself um you know, is, is really gratifying. And I, I do, I kind of bounce back and forth, you know, sometimes I'll get sort of stymied in one area and it's like, I'll kind of put that aside for a little bit and go work on something else. And um, the, the kind of cerebral engagement still keeps me in a creative place, but -hmm. sometimes I need to just sort of like engage my body in a different physical way. And then inevitably it's like, Oh yeah, that's what I needed to do on that piece. And then I can go back. And Mm -hmm. so, there's a, a push and pull, you know, I think with how I work, um, you know, I, I prefer to do metal work like first thing in the morning and then uh, painting and drawing. I typically like doing later in the day or in the evening.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, I, and I think like, I, I, I feel like I always wake up kind of like <laughs> anxious and a little agitated. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's easier for me to sort of like, Direct that energy into something like metalwork than it was with with painting and drawing. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. when I, if I was doing a more elaborate, you know, painting or drawing, and I start it in the morning, a lot of times I realize it's like there's an aggressiveness (laughs) (laughs) for mark making sometimes that, you know, I have to figure out how to sort of blend out over the overall composition.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's just like gashes going through the paper from the pencil.
1: North Bennett Street School is still taking applications for all of their nine full-time training programs. The fall semester begins September 13th. View all of their programs, including jewelry making and repair, at nbss.edu/programs, and learn how to apply and find financial aid options at nbss.edu/admissions.
2: Interested in registering for a class in metalworking or jewelry? Well, as we've mentioned before, the John C. Campbell Folk School's classes in Brasstown, North Carolina are back. Browse their e-catalog online or request a print catalog at folkschool.org. The Folk School is also hiring for a variety of positions. Check them out at folkschool.org under their Employment Opportunities tab.
1: So are are there other metalsmiths that you admire?
0: Oh, yeah. so many <laughs>
1: <laughs> or maybe like a type or something if you, you want to give us a big list
0: <laughs> well I'll, I'll give like two people um, and again I could I'm not snubbing any of my many mentors out there but I'm just going to name yeah. two to start off with so <laughs> Andy Cooperman is one um, he's a metalsmith up in uh, Seattle area and uh, it, it his exploration of form and material and like his competency with different techniques and uh, skill is just, it's phenomenal, you know? And he's also got this great uh, quirky sense of humor that will show through, you know, in some of these objects. He has this whole series of, um, he's got this fascination for little rubber chickens.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> love that. <laughs> that sounds great. They'll
0: show up. He's got this one that's like a ring that has like this little bowl of flames coming out and this like chicken this little rubber chicken that's on a rotisserie above <laughs> the fire <laughs> so, you know so he can do that but then he can make these really sophisticated and intricately textured and forged and fabricated gold pieces with unusual stones and hmm. unusual materials like buttons or hmm. uh, porcupine quills um, hmm. rattlesnake rattles wow. and so it's just this really, um, it's exciting, it's playful, um, and it's so well-crafted, you know, I just, I love that, you know, aspect of what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, had and then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my metal mother, you know, Helen Shirk, you know, she, uh, is another person that just has such a wide range of, of different styles of work that she's doing, you know, um, from really large, elaborate, colorful vessels um to you know more recent work which are these intricately cut uh steel jewelry pieces um Mm, and and just seeing the the grace with which she uh handled a a teaching career that spanned decades i mean she started working at san diego state in the 70s and left in like the early 2000s and uh you know the number of people that she's sort of provided to the metalsmithing community at large is, is phenomenal. And, uh, and just the longevity of her career, you know, mm. um, just, yeah. You know, it's like, I, I felt honored to have had the opportunity uh, to work with her in grad
2: school. Wow. It was amazing. That's, yeah. You weren't lying about having good mentors. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: so uh, David, is there anyone outside of metalsmithing that you admire or have, has had a big impact on you?
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's I, I I look at a lot of work. Um, you know, I've I've kind of uh, lately been looking again at a lot of Martin Purrier's work, and uh, Fred Wilson is another one. Um, Hank Willis Thomas, um, and and I think it's because I've been sort of thinking about this kind of social commentary work mm-hmm. uh, in terms of looking at Fred Wilson and Hank Willis Thomas work. Um, and then, you know, with Martin Puryear, it it's, you know, the, these kind of formal explorations, uh, he's a woodworker
2: mm-hmm.
0: that does these kind of sculptural forms that, you know, they're suggestive of things that you, you feel like you're familiar with, but, you know, they're, they're abstracted in a way that, um, is, is, can be kind of uncanny at times. Um, and really, I think sort of sparks the curiosity of the viewer and, uh, uh draws them in you know and, and and also just the way that he works with like surface treatments and textures i just find you know fascinating uh fred wilson you know I, i've talked or mentioned before like the idea of you know um making these sort of fictions by the way that you orchestrate the materials and mm-hmm. um, the forms you're working with you know he sort of takes things that are in existing this is one body of work he does a lot of different things but the museum collection pieces that he did years ago where he will go into an existing museum, reconfigure, you know, objects within that collection to tell different stories. Hmm. Um, I love that sort of, you know, manipulation of power in terms of like how you're telling a story through the objects. Um, Hmm. It's something that's really fascinating. Um, And then with Hank Willis Thomas, same kind of thing where it's just like this, uh, you know, really charging objects with interesting messages um, and, you know, forcing you to kind of reconcile like the new placement of that object and uh, the, the pairing of that object with other elements within the composition uh, that really makes you think, you know. And he does a lot of photographic work and print work and, uh, you know, billboards, it, it's, it's all over the place, but it's really the kind of uh, comparison of objects to create, uh, new questions, you know, based on what you have in terms of an understanding of those objects and their normal, you know, sort of positioning, you know, in, mm-hmm. in society and in culture.
4: Cool. Um,
1: so what inspires you outside of your craft?
0: This came up in another interview fairly recently, and it's something that's been like one of the longest <laughs> kind of running <laughs> inspirations for me are, uh, comics. I love comics Cool. Um, and uh, it was, you know, something that helped me learn to read when I was a little kid um, Mm -hmm. and got lured in by some of these artists uh, in terms of what they were doing with imagery. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was just, it was spellbinding. And so, yeah, it's like, I, I'm constantly (laughs) reading graphic novels and Mm -hmm. um, you know, being outside, you know, running is another thing I've done most of my life you know, from the Greenbelt trails, uh, growing up in Austin, Texas, um, you know, uh, the the river trail in Little Rock, you know, the hills out here at at, at Pinland And uh, it's, again, I think one of those ways that I can kind of like uh, channel some of that nervous energy and, you know, calms me down. Uh, Mm -hmm. I like going to new cities and running. Um, It's a great way to have like this very direct, Kind of connection you know to the place and the people you're seeing and things you're smelling and yeah it's just uh i like that kind of immediacy and directness that, that running yields um and again the sort of meditation hmm. um, That's cool. so yeah those are those are the things i feel like have been so consistent
2: i definitely I ad- really admire people who can run and think about anything other than not dying <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Because that's always I I've been trying to run for the last like year and a half, and people always say it gets better, and I mean, and sometimes it does. I should probably just focus on like not whining as much while.
0: I'm <laughs> Yeah, you know, one, one step at a time. I mean, you, you, you definitely have like it's always amazing. I'll, I'll run out here, you know, and it's it's kind of mountainous. It's all either uphill or downhill, and then I mm-hmm. go back home to Austin and like you know get out on the Green Belt, and it's like I'll go. You know two or three times the distance that you know i go mm-hmm. out here and it's just like i'll be cruising along and it's like oh wait i've gone 10 miles you know oh my gosh <laughs> it's so different running on something that's like you know kind of flat and like low rolling holes to just like i'm gonna run up the side of this mountain yeah you know? totally,
4: <laughs> wow. totally
1: i gotta say that has never ever happened to me <laughs>
0: yeah oh dang i just went 10 miles 10 miles you know but it's like you know when i I talk about that that sort of the the sensory experience there's times when i get to run out at penland and you know it's kind of cool and like there's this fog that gets thicker as you go up the hill that's behind penland and you get Mm -hmm. to the top and it's literally like as your legs are moving the the little it's like little waves of fog are pulling across your leg as you're running and it's just like the trees have this really sort of haunted you know feel because it's like you know the edge quality is diffused and Mm -hmm. you know when it's like that i call it running with ghosts because i just feel like there's something (laughs) up there you know yeah
2: oh that'd be the coolest coolest name ever for a body of work
1: oh (laughs) yeah running with ghosts Mm -hmm. i want to read that
2: graphic novel (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well so david if someone wants to see more of your work where can they find you
0: um so definitely online um davidharperclemons.com is my website um instagram handle is at HarperClemens. um physical locations um just started working with a great uh new gallery up in portland uh, day in the life um if you're in the area definitely check it out some phenomenal wares, a lot of different craft artists um yeah, the Penland...
2: Por- in portland oregon right
0: Por- portland oregon yep yes yeah cool and then uh the Pinland gallery here you know, has some of my work and then as well the sc purse museum in little rock arkansas um awesome. and then like museum collections um the yale craft collection ornamental metal museum in memphis um and there's a small collection of work at UT Austin, wow. but hopefully it'll be more visible soon. Yeah. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs>
2: Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for, um, for joining us today and sharing about your work and experiences. And uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
2: All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for this conversation and also to everyone who has supported the show whether financially or otherwise.
1: Every contribution matters, both for helping us grow the podcast and raising money for craft scholarships. Also, thank you to our sponsors, North Bennett Street School in Massachusetts, John C. Campbell Folk School in North Carolina, North House Folk School in Minnesota, and Penland School of Craft in North Carolina. Also, a free way to support the show is to just leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show and we really appreciate the feedback.
2: I also really like that how all of our sponsors are have North somewhere in the title of them, <laughs> whether it's the, whether it's the title of the craft school or the uh, or the place where North it's located. Trail. Oh my everything's god, everything's North.
1: That's true. I was like, that's yeah. not true for like Penn. I was Like, that's so true. North, everything. Yep.
2: <laughs> Even the ones in the South are in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway if uh if you'd like to see more images of guest work or stay up to date on other happenings such as our class giveaway with john c campbell folk school in Mm -hmm. north carolina (laughs) um, please follow us on instagram at cut the craft podcast also if you want to see more of our work both of our accounts are linked in the bio of the podcast page
1: You can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or guest recommendations for the show, or even if you just want to say hi. (laughs)
2: Hello. Um, (laughs) But especially guest recommendations. Uh, We really, really appreciate the help in finding new people. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've loved some of the conversations we've had that have come as a result of y'all reaching out and letting us know who you want to hear from. So thank you and please. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, a huge thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your help with production. And I really just want to give an extra special thanks to Luke in this episode because he's always so accommodating whenever I get him the tracks, um, the edited tracks. He just, no matter what, always gets things to us right on time. And is just a very generous and sweet person. And even just adopted a new puppy that jumped into his car during a rainstorm the other day. Oh night. my God, are you so, serious? <laughs> yes, just an all-star human being. Uh, <laughs> so thank you, Luke, so much for all your help with the show. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, and I hope that uh, this thank you still sounds as genuine. Um, <laughs> 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 thank, <laughs> thank you to Justin Williams for uh, writing those little tidbits, uh, introducing the next guest every episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that too. Mm-hmm. Everybody who helps this show uh we just love you all so much. Thank you. Coming up next, we have an interview with a furniture maker and artist Aspen Golan. So to get a little glimpse into our conversation, here's a little off cut. Thanks for that one, Umbel yeah, thanks again for joining us.
3: See you next time. So in order to be playful, like these shorter term um pieces in their entirety. So those like my brushwork, like me, these brushes. Um, and so mm-hmm. those pieces take, you know, anywhere from a day to a week to finish. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to maintain a sense of playfulness during <laughs> that time period. And then mm-hmm. the image work, I typically include imagery in my, um, furniture pieces, either through glass or, um, marquetry or other kinds of in or traditional, um, decorative processes. Um, and those pieces I make after I'm finished, sort of with the, the long, intense, arduous process of making the work, like the actual mm-hmm. um, functional object itself. And then I mm-hmm. sort of detach from it, take a few days, and then have sort of a playful burst and put that work into it. Um, oh. Yeah, my, my, one of my mentors, Peter Galbert, who's a uh, Windsor chairmaker, said this thing that I really love um, that the process of iteration needs to be painless um, in order to make new and interesting work. So the hmm. idea that like it has to be easy to destroy an idea and start again or shift something around. And if it's not easy to shift it around, you simply won't do it. And so you'll get stuck <laughs> with these sort of stale ideas or ideas that become stale quickly. And so for me, like the small work was a way and the image work was a way to bring quick iteration back into furniture, mm. which is not Which is not a quick process, just by its nature. Wow,
2: I need a moment to think about that for a second.